Well, if you turn your Bibles to Haggai, that's in the Old Testament. You can make your way between the Old and New Testament to those white pages, work your way from right to left. You'll find Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai. There's only two chapters there. It's like one of those small country towns, you're driving along the interstate, and if you blink, you miss it. (laughs) So if you go too far, you may want to work your way back. It is right there towards the end of the Old Testament. In 1929, the stock market plunged. Farmers sold their livestock only to find they owed the shipper. Since the livestock did not bring in enough, cattle had lost weight. Horses had to eat hay full of chaff and dirt, which caused lung problems and even death. The hardest years of the Great Depression of the 30s came with the 1933-37 drought. Grain and fields burned up. Soil was so dry that carrying water to the plants did no good. They didn't have the money for gas, the pumps. The ground was so dry it opened up into dangerous cracks. The Black Plague then moved in. A moving carpet of lively, hungry, crawling army worms stripped Everything, every inch of land, the trees, moved into the houses, the buildings, everything for 10 days. Clothes, clothes during this time were made out of old ones, cast off by others. It was considered the new clothes. They were ripped apart and the fabric was turned. And then the summer of the Dust Bowl. Topsoil piled up like snowbanks against the trees and buildings. There was no stopping the dust. Wet towels were placed in the windowsills to keep it outside. Many elderly and babies died from lung congestion. The children of the Great Depression were hit in the dead of night by Pearl Harbor and World War II. Well, it was during this economical depression when liberalism also made its way from Germany, found its way through Europe and to the United States. Liberalism denied the sufficiency and inerrancy of Scripture, denied the deity of Jesus Christ, denied his substitutionary work on behalf of sinners, socialized the Bible, the gospel, made it out to be something that just can benefit man, moralize man, make him better in life. That was Christianity to liberalism. And in that context, in the context of the economic depression and the spiritual depression, if you will, Machen stood up, a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, and wrote his book, Christianity and Liberalism. And against this dark spiritual background, defended the gospel. You could clearly see the gospel in light of the heretical attacks on it. Amazing how the Lord allows some dark times to bring the light to the clarity of the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was taught liberalism in the German institutions of his country. And at that time, Hitler rode upon the coattails of the collapse of the church into liberalism and established the state church. On September 5th, 1933, delegations of pastors and church leaders arrived wearing Nazi uniforms and giving the Nazi salute. Bonhoeffer made his way through the U.S. and through Europe trying to raise support, spiritual support, economic support for the, the, the dying faithful churches there in Germany. He wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship, noting true saving grace, costly grace rooted in the gospel. It's contrast from this cheap grace that was mere profession watered down. Again, dark times, economic, spiritual, and God raises up men to 
put a highlight upon the gospel. The nation of Israel, the text that we're going to look at today, was in a state of economical and spiritual depression. Upon their return from captivity in Babylon, now mind you, we need to make a little comment on this. God in Deuteronomy had mentioned that if they did not believe his promises, the promises that look forward to the gospel, the new covenant promises, evidenced in a life of disobedience, that God would cast them out of the land. And he did that. They worshipped foreign gods, idols. They wanted to be like all the other nations. They wanted the prosperity of the nations. So they worshipped foreign gods. They rejected God. And God drove them out of the land. And they spent 70 years in Babylon. Now, mind you, Ezra chapter 1 gives a little context to this, this book here, Haggai. Ezra 1 tells us that Cyrus, king of Persia, took over Babylon, became the ruling power. He rose up to power and made a decree that the people of Israel should return to their land and rebuild the house of the Lord. Rebuild the house of the Lord. What's interesting is that Isaiah prophesied of Cyrus, named him by name Cyrus, in Isaiah 44, verse 28 some 200 years before Cyrus lived. 200 years, God said he would raise up Cyrus and he would lead the people, send the people back to the promised land to rebuild the house of the Lord. Well, Israel returned. Cyrus died. Cambyses' son took the throne and he took Egypt under his power. Egypt being in the south, Persia being in the north, along with Assyria and Babylon, northeast, he made his way through Israel to Egypt to plunder, and he plundered Israel on the way. How are they to build the house of the Lord when politically things are in shambles? Cambyses died on one of his expeditions to Egypt, and Darius, a son of Cambyses' satraps, not Darius of Daniel, but another Darius, took the throne. It was during this time that the Samaritans around Israel put pressure on them, keeping them from rebuilding the house of the Lord. What were they to do? God was calling them to build the house of the Lord. They were God's chosen people entrusted with the promises and the shadows and pictures of the gospel of Christ. What were they left to do? For 15 years. For 15 years... They thought, what can we do? We'll focus on our own homes, our own lives, our own work life. We'll develop what we know, our families. Uh, We we can't build the temple. That brings political turmoil. So God raises up Haggai the prophet. He comes in some 15, 16 years later after the first decree of Cyrus and says, build the temple. Build the house of the Lord. Now, this text becomes helpful for us as believers. We know Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 said that even the things that happened to Israel are examples for us as believers. And so I think as we look at this text, we can see at least four divine motivations for rekindling the heart of spiritual apathy. Rekindling the heart in the pleasure and glory of God. And you see God displaying his pleasure and glory, particularly in verse 8. And I'd have you look there just to set up the context where the Lord says, go up, go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house 
that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Seek my pleasure. Seek my glory. How does he do this? How does he kindle the heart? How does he deal with his spiritual apathy? Well, the first divine motivation is remember God's... I'm going to give you a P and an R here for all of these. Remember God's prophetic revelation. God's prophetic revelation. Simply his word through his prophets. And you'll see this in verses 1 through 3. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And notice the leaders are being addressed. The political leader, Zerubbabel, as well as the religious leader, Joshua, the high priest. Verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say... The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Remember God's prophetic revelation. We see here God confronts his people's apathy with the word of the Lord. Or thus says the Lord. Look at the contrast in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say. He confronts the words and the thoughts of his people with his own thoughts and words. He calls them to think his thoughts after him by giving forth his word. Remember the fall in the garden occurred through the devilish attack upon the word of God. An attack that questioned God's word, that doubted God's word, that distorted God's word, and finally denied God's word. So how are the people of God to be confronted in heart? It's through the proclamation of the word. And so we see in verse 1, the word of the Lord came by the prophet. Verse 2, thus says the Lord. Verse 3, the word of the Lord came by Haggai. Verse 5, thus says the Lord. Verse 7, thus says the Lord. Verse 12, the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. His words are seen in view of his voice. His voice. Thus says the Lord. They would listen to the word of God as if they were hearing God himself for the word of God is said to be none other than his voice. This is, this is amazing and so applicable for you and I. When we are riveted on our own pleasures, and our own glory, and this text will tell us that they're futile when we do that, they pass away. How might our hearts be rekindled? Through the word of God proclaiming the glory of God, his pleasure, his glory. We need the word of God. That's why we come on Sundays to hear God's word. I come even, even here and proclaiming it, it's proclaiming truth to my own heart, it's impressing me with Jesus Christ as a pastor. And for you, being impressed with Christ, we, we see the examples here and the testimonies of the futility of one's own life against the infiniteness of God's character and God's work. And we're drawn to be impressed with His pleasure and His glory. So we see our need for the Word of God. We see the people of God's need for the Word of God. But notice that in the Word of God, they meet the God of the Word. Look at verse 2. Thus says... The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. The primary meaning is army. 
communicates military conquest. It's a military context. His power is no, de- no, no doubt shown over his, the fact that he's the captain of the armies of Israel, but he is also the captain of the nations. Who is the one who raised up Assyria to chasten the northern tribes of Israel? Who raised up Babylon to chasten the southern tribes of Israel? Who raised up Cyrus of Persia? Who raised up Pharaoh of Egypt so that God would declare his glory through his powerful wonders in the Exodus? God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And so maybe a a better and clear title, it could be translated this way, God Almighty, God Almighty. It's used in Amos 4.13, associating God with control over the mountains and the wind and creation. He's master over every force. Think of the context in which Haggai writes. Persia is the empire. It has, in effect, conquered the world. And yet the word of God communicates that God is the absolute potentate. He is the Lord Almighty. Don't fear Persia. Don't fear Babylon. Don't fear Assyria. Fear the Lord Almighty. But notice the despairing words of the people in verse 2. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. We hear sometimes these thoughts in our own hearts, these anxious, despairing thoughts. And sometimes we hear them from others. They say, but they say, well, they say, and we ask, well, who, who is they? Who are they? I recall joining a, a group of men to minister in the Douglas County Juvenile Center. I try to look for opportunities and don't always want to reinvent the wheel. And so we, we, we test it to see if we can share the gospel of Christ, and sometimes we're rejected, and that's the answer, and we go reinvent the wheel. In this case, we had 25 to 30 men that, that went to, to serve, and I remember the, the chaplain and leaders were encouraged. They hadn't seen 25 young men doing this kind of thing. There was a lot of older men, older, older women. And, and we had the opportunity to sit at tables with some very troubled young men, and we opened the scriptures. And we proclaimed the, the truth of God's word about the sinful heart and the need for Jesus Christ's saving work. And the chaplain came out later and confronted us and said, we don't talk about the sinful heart. We talk about their goodness and the fact that they need to change goals. They need to think better of themselves. Don't talk about sinful hearts. And as we were inviting him to consider Romans, to consider the gospel right there in the dark of the night out in the parking lot, he turned to me. I had brought my 10-year-old son who was standing there, and he said, would you tell your son that he is sinful? And I looked at my son, and I said, "Uh, why don't you speak? (laughs) You know what I say. (laughs) He just quoted Romans 3.10. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who does good, not even one. And the chaplain just stood there. (laughs) What are you supposed to say when a little child just speaks the word of God? They say Christ is not sufficient. They say God's word is not sufficient. They say the gospel is not sufficient. But who are they that say Who are the people that say, what philosophies, what ideologies, what how-to plan, what experience can measure 
to the grandeur and glory of a sovereign God, the God of Scripture. They say, but God's Word says. Brothers and sisters, there are times where we are conflicted with what they say. We get it on media everywhere. We turn on the dial, radio, television, billboards. They say, they say, here's your redemptive plan. Here's your problem. Here's your hope. And we need to run to the Word of God to see what God says, that our hearts may be rekindled and be impressed with the pleasure and glory of God. So that takes us to the second divine motivation. Or the first one, we saw God's prophetic revelation. We need to hear what God says to confront our hearts over what they say. And here we see we need to remember God's pleasant, and it's a funny little R here, refulgence. Pleasant refulgence. Prophetic revelation, pleasant refulgence. I was first confronted with this word from Jonathan Edwards, who was appealing to and meditating on Romans 11.36, that from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. He was describing God in light of this text as the beginning, the means, and the goal. That is, he is glorious, he pursues his own glory, and he receives glory. Now this text, Haggai, will confront the human heart with pursuing the pleasure and goals of mankind that perish. But he will then remind them, verse 8, to consider his pleasure and his glory, or you could say his refulgence or his radiation, the radiation of his splendor. He is glorious. He is weighty. He reveals that. Psalm 19 says he declares it even in creation. But it all comes back to him. So that in his sovereign providence as he works through time, space, history, and ultimately in the cross of Jesus Christ, we come to grips with the pleasure and glory of God. Now on the cross, we see the display of God's pleasure and glory. Do we not in the personal work of Jesus Christ? Where would you see the glorious portrayal and display of God's justice and holiness? You see it in Christ who came to this earth, added to his divine nature, human nature, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. And from the time he was born uh, into his adulthood, he is obeying the law perfectly. These perfect requirements that when we stand before, we, we tremble and we say we cannot keep them. They, they show that our hearts and our thoughts fall short of his glory. And instead of subtracting from his law or adding to his law, as legalism does, as self-righteousness does, we're committed to look to Christ. And he stepped into this world and he obeyed the law perfectly in thought and deed. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law. Romans 5.19 says, the, the obedience of the one, the many, would be made righteous. So we see Christ's perfect righteousness as he obeyed the law, as he loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbors himself. We couldn't do it. We failed in thought and deed. And so we see Christ's perfect righteousness put on display in humanity. Oh, but that that righteousness is is magnified as well on the cross because we've broken God's law. We deserve the curse of the law. God is a holy judge. He must deal with sin. He cannot compromise. If he did, he would de-God himself and not be God. So he must maintain his righteousness and his holy character. And what does Christ do? His obedience takes him to the point of death on the cross, as Philippians 2 says, where he took the wrath, the judgment, the curse of the law. Not for himself, but for sinners who believe in Jesus Christ. It is there we see justice and righteousness and holiness. 
As Scripture says, justice and truth, they kiss there in Christ. Where else are you going to see it put on display? My sin, eternal judgment for every thought and deed, Christ took that upon himself, the eternal weight of judgment for all those who believe in him. No wonder there's a crowd of people in Revelation going, worthy is the Lamb. Holy, 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 glorious. No wonder the angels are standing before him saying, holy, holy, holy. Set apart, glorious, righteous, just. Never saying, compromiser, compromiser. You just close your eyes, let people into heaven. No, none of that. Holy, holy, holy. You dealt with sin. You exalted your righteousness. No wonder the Father looks at the Son in Matthew 3 and says, this is my Son in whom I'm well, fully pleased. Wow. That's what the Word of God promotes to our hearts. Promotes the splendor of His glory, or as I've said here, His refulgence. But notice that the people have to be confronted. In verse 6, step back to verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways or put your heart on your paths, on the character of your paths. Examine your life. You've sown much, harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And what what a contrast. Thus says the Lord Almighty, consider your paths. When you run to find fulfillment in yourself, you come up empty. And so you run to it again and again and again. You buy the house that you've always dreamed and you're repairing, repairing, repairing. The work. It too. Paycheck. I need another paycheck. I need another paycheck. We keep going. Loss of job. Oh, now what am I going to do? Always trying to fulfill. Always trying to satisfy. So look at your past. Sufficiency is found in God. That's why it says in verse 8, Go to the hills, bring wood, build the house that I may take pleasure, look for God's pleasure, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. The house of the Lord was in ruins. In 587 B.C., the temple had been burned down. All the wooden parts had been razed to the ground. There were 70 years of winter rains that had done their damage. Jeremiah in Lamentations 5.18 says, Mount Zion lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. It was a wasteland, charred. And we look at, at the people and we go, but, but, but Lord, don't you understand? Economically, politically, it's tough times. What else are they to do? It's, ah, but remember, remember, you get God. Remember his pleasure, his delight, his glory, his refulgence. What's so awesome about contrasting their futility, running to the job every day, health every day, trying to maintain the health, losing it, suffering, the difficulties of life that catch up on us. He contrasts that to His glory. Glory describes a weightiness, depth, heaviness. It's attached to content. We may describe it as someone's worth or value. It, it demonstrates itself in Honor and praise and worship in light of somebody's worth, value, content. When you open the scriptures and you look at the glory of God, you see that he is eternally weighty. 
You don't come up empty. You, you look into his, the glory of his love and you see that it is infinite. The glory of his justice, infinite. The glory of his holiness, infinite. If you get God, you get everything. That's what Paul's point to the Corinthians was. You have all things in Christ Jesus. And this is where the word confronted their hearts. Run to his glory. Find pleasure in his pleasure. That'll pull you off of the rat race of life, of running to futility, to no end. Put your heart in your paths. Now, why is he so focused on the temple? What is so big about the house of the Lord? I mean, Cyrus is raised up to build the house of the Lord. Well, throughout Scripture, we see that there are portrayals or portraits that run us to Jesus Christ. We call them trajectories or threads that run us to Christ. And we see one of those in the temple. I'd like to show you a few passages. If you'd turn with me to John chapter 2, John chapter 2, 17 through 22. You see Christ looking at Herod's temple and then referring to himself as the temple. John chapter 2. And I'd like you to start with verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That would be Christ's zeal and passion is for the, the house of the Lord. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In John 1.14, if you had time to move through there, you'd see the word tabernacled or dwelt borrowed from this idea of temple. Christ tabernacled or templed among us. This is a portrait of Christ. So while there indeed are physical temples, remember that Israel had been entrusted with the promises of the gospel. And so as they painted these pictures through sacrifice and offering and their honor of the temple, they were pointing visibly towards the ultimate end and means Christ. Christ Jesus, the substance. We see in the temple sacrifices, Hebrews tells us that these foreshadowed the sacrifice of Christ when he offered himself once for all for sin, for our sin. The temple was called by the name of God. We see that in the Old Testament. It's raised up. He said his name would be there. He would proclaim his glory through the temple. It's no accident when you look in the New Testament and you see that the believers in the New Testament are called the temple of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ, where his name is proclaimed. Again, Christ, we see, as the substance of these shadows. So where were the people's hearts? If their understanding of the promise of Christ in the gospel that pointed to Christ was displayed in their love for the temple, where were their hearts? No wonder in the Old Testament, when they abandoned the promises of God, they often ran to idolatry. In so doing, the temple began to fall apart. It was replaced with foreign idols. 
Where was their pleasure? Look at verse 9. You looked for much. Your whole life was bent on this aim. Behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Vanity, endless treadmill. (laughs) Running, 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 bring it home, blown away. Get more, running, running, blown away. Look to the promise. Look to the glory of God in Christ. That takes us to number three. We've seen God's prophetic revelation. I need his word. It communicates the glory of God and his pleasure against the backdrop of the futility that the world offers and promotes. So I recognize it's God's glory that I desire. And this moves us to helping us understand God's providential rule. Number three, God's providential rule. We're able to see, wait a minute, God is in control. He is working here. He's accomplishing his purposes. Sometimes it's just to show me the futility of my ways and to show me that he is infinite and glorious and eternal, how I need him. And so as we see God mysteriously working through providence or through creation to accomplish his purposes, giving suffering, trials, hardships, we are then confronted with the word of God, see the glory of God, and treasure his providential rule. And this Haggai turns their attention to in verse 10. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought in the land, and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Calls for a drought. It's a play on words. There his house lie in ruins. Their work and labor lie in ruins. We see that it is God who called, verse 11, for this drought in the land and the hills. We see his sovereignty underlined. We note in verse 10, God's providential rule over creation. We see that the sky, the heavens above, are under his providential rule. We see the earth, again in verse 10, its produce under his providential rule. We see his providential rule over creation. Over the creatures, verse 11, we note, I have called for a drought in the land, on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Mankind under God's sovereignty, the beasts of the field under God's sovereignty. You see, it's the word of God that confronts our futile hearts and our futile living with the glory of God, and we wake up and we see, ah, He is in control. He is working to accomplish his glory. Yes, through hardship. Yes, through trials. Yes, in a sin-cursed world. I remember my children when they were much younger. And uh, we would be walking through a grocery store, and they'd find some object. What I remember often was one of those Jeeps, big battery-powered Jeeps, some three, $400. They wanted to cruise around, and, Daddy, can we get that? I don't have the money for that at this point. That'd be a great thing. Maybe one day we can buy you a rust bucket or a junker, a real one, one of these days. Well, Dad, just slide your card. Well, wait a minute. Okay, I see what you... Oh, yeah, it looks that... Yeah, I need to talk about this. The, The card pulls money from the bank. Well, Dad, go to the bank. 
Well, actually, I, I, see, I worked for Steve, my boss. This was a couple years ago. And I put in the hours, and he pays me. I put that in the bank, and then I slide the card. Well, go ask your boss for, for uh, more money. <laughs> Pretty soon, I'm trying to explain, you know, where the, God provides the rain on the fields. And then we, for the fields, we have our agriculture, and that gets the grocery store. And then you have the farmers involved. <laughs> this whole story. Basically, explaining God's providence over all things. It's not just about a slide of the card. That's where Israel was. Slide of the card. If I can just go out, push the right buttons, get the right job, be comfortable in my home, get my family life all together. Can't really deal with the economy. Can't deal with the political situation. Mm, it's not time to put on display the gospel in the temple. Nah. Just slide the card. And the Lord's saying, nah. It's not how it works. I'm in control. Look at my providence. And that brings us to our last point. And that is this. God's portrayed redemption. God's portrayed redemption. Throughout Scripture, we see these portrayals of gospel redemption. We need this promise of the gospel to kindle our hearts. You notice here, before we consider this portrayal of redemption, notice the Lord's providence over the hearts of men. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, so he's starting with the leaders, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. So the word of the Lord begins by tending to the leaders and then moves to the people. So that the people fear the Lord rather than fearing men, rather than feeling the, uh, fearing the political powers or economic situation. They were brought to fear the Lord. 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Verse 14, and the Lord stirred up, see his sovereignty and providential rule even over the hearts of men. He stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. This, we're going to see, is attributed to the portrayals of the gospel in chapter 2, which we'll quickly run through and note three portrayals, three pictures. But as we do that, I want to leave you with Thomas Watson's quote. It's very helpful. He says this, As the love of God makes every bitter thing sweet, so the curse of God makes every sweet thing bitter. Read that again. As the love of God makes every bitter thing sweet, so the curse of God makes every sweet thing bitter. The gospel sanctifies work, family life, our endeavors to put on display the glory of God. So then we find our ultimate end isn't our home or our work life or our goals or accomplishments. It is found in the glory of God through the personal work of Jesus Christ, the gospel. His perfect work. His obedience, his cross work. And it's there that the hearts of the people are stirred up. Now look as he commends to us these three portrayals of the gospel. And these will take us into our communion time, which is evidently a portrayal, a picture, that points us to the cross work of Jesus Christ. So let's look at these three portrayals. First of all, deliverance from Egypt. Look at chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. 
Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? There are some who are old enough to have remembered the temple of Solomon in all its glory, and it was astounding. There's nothing like it. And they were bemoaning the fact, look, look at what we're doing here. It is nothing. It, it is a house of straw and rubble compared to the Solomon temple. Verse 4. See the despair. I mean, again, what is driving them to their own homes? They need to look at the promises of, of God in the gospel. Verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong. Don't let your despair get to you, anxiety get to you. It leads you to pursue your own glory. Be strong. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So he deals with the leaders again. Be strong, O you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Again, fear not. Now, I think the best translation of this word covenant is promise or word. The word covenant is not used, barit, in the Hebrew here. It is actually the word of devar, promise or word. I take it that this promise or word is the promise that's equated with God's deliverance of his people from Egypt and the promise that he would establish his people as his people and he would be in their midst. Gospel portrayals, Christ, God with us, Emmanuel with us. Think of the Exodus. Think of the Exodus event of the Passover lamb that was slain, and through it, the angel of death passed over Israel and judged the nation of Egypt, and God brought them through a powerful hand of redemption out of the bondage of servitude and brought them through the Red Sea, using the Red Sea to judge Pharaoh and his armies and bring them through ultimately into the promised land. He says, there I've established this promise to you, Psalm 78, we don't have time to go there. We referred to it a couple Sunday nights ago if you want to get the the, uh, CD. But God equates deliverance from Egypt with his redemption and his salvation. It's in this context that Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover Lamb that was slain becomes a rich portrayal of Christ's redemptive work. These are some of the threads that we see in the Old Testament or the trajectories. We see God's portrayals established historically and physically that point us to the final fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so they're drawing confidence from this to be strong. You say, how am I going to be strong? How am I going to be strong in the Lord in the midst of personal weakness and difficulty and suffering? Remember the gospel. Maybe it's, it's moving through the Old Testament and looking through the portrayals of redemption that run you to the cross where you remember the glory of God displayed in the personal work of Jesus Christ and you are strengthened in the midst of suffering. We've seen this this week, many of us as members of this body, have we not been personally over to some of the individuals who've been going through some very difficult suffering, and you've been encouraging them through the social network of Facebook, been encouraging them face-to-face, encouraging them with texts, encouraging them with phone calls, ministering to them. What are we ministering with when our experiences fall short of being able to identify? Or we don't have a how-to step plan to bring them through the suffering. What is it? The gospel, the hope of Christ. 
It's that when a member is suffering in sickness and weak and hearing the word of God at the bedside being read and the gospel being read. There's no other hope when the body itself is weak, decaying. Many of us have gone through that on different levels or will be entering that. And it's the same gospel that brings strength and confidence. He moves us to a second portrayal, and that's in the temple. And we've already uh, dealt with that in John chapter 2. But you see it in Haggai 2, 6 through 9. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord of hosts. Notice how almighty, Lord almighty. Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. You get this almighty, the Lord almighty, the Lord almighty, the Lord almighty. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord, let's just say it, almighty. The promise is that there will be a latter temple, a latter day temple that God will raise up. We see the tabernacle, we see the Solomon of, or Solomon's temple, we see it during the days of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. We see it with Herod's temple. But there's a promise that God will raise up a latter-day temple, a temple equated with the day of the Lord when Christ displays his messianic glory. Now, if you looked had time, we could look through Ezekiel 40 through 48 and see the character of this temple. And one astounding characteristic that shows us there's yet a physical temple to come is that the promise there is that there will be a stream of water emitting from the temple that will run its way east and then south into the Dead Sea so that the Dead Sea will become fresh and will be teeming with living life of fish. Now, a number of us were there in February, and that Dead Sea had no life. It hasn't happened yet. But there's a promise in Ezekiel that that will one day be turned to fresh water just as the Mediterranean Sea. There is a latter-day temple. But, lest we forget the trajectory, Revelation 21-22 says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That coming temple will find its resolution fulfillment ultimately in Jesus Christ, the temple. And there will be no temple. Look at Hebrews 12. I want you to see how Hebrews 12 quotes from this text here that God will shake all the nations, shake the heavens and the earth. Look to Hebrews 12, verse 20. We'll start with 22. And the Hebrew writer quotes from this text, but applies it spiritually to the eternal kingdom found in Christ and causes, calls us to find great rest in this promise. So again, while it is applied, no doubt, to a literal latter-day temple, at the same time, it must run like a stream into the waters, the ocean depths of Christ as the fulfillment. And so we see in Hebrews 12, 22, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven." At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, here's our quote from Haggai chapter 2. 
Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Remember the contrast to the futile things of life passing away. Verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Pointing to Christ. Pointing to Him. And that keeps them strong. It reminds them of the glory and pleasure of God in the midst of economic, political, physical despair and suffering. And it's the Word of God that promotes all this. Oh, how we need the Word of God to promote the gospel to our hearts. There's a last and that's the gospel portrayed in the messianic line. We've seen it in the Exodus, we've seen it in the temple, and we finally we see it in the messianic line. And here, as you keep your finger in Haggai, go to Matthew chapter 1. And then we will move into our time of exalting Christ through the picture of communion, the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 1. And you'll need this as a cross-reference to see the fulfillment of this promise. And boy, is it an encouraging promise to Zerubbabel. You want to go to verse 12. Have your finger there, Matthew 1, 12, and then go back to Haggai chapter 2 and look at God's promise in verse 21. Haggai 2, 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. We saw that in Hebrews 2, or Hebrews 12. To shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms lest we be sinking our roots into a kingdom that's passing away, remember, God's going to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the kingdoms of the world. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdom of the nations, overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Almighty, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now notice the descriptiveness here. My servant. Christ is called the servant of the Lord. He carries out and executes the will and purpose of God. And we see the great servant in taking wrath in Isaiah 53 and showing the arm of the Lord. We see here he is like a, a signet ring. A signet ring was represented one's authority. It's used in Song of Solomon, verse, chapter 8, verse 6, where it's said to be a seal upon the heart, a seal upon the arm. In Esther 8.10, it's used of a symbol of authority. So it's used as a symbol of pleasure and affection and desire. But it's also used as a symbol of authority. Official documents were sealed by the signet ring. And Zerubbabel is noted as this signet ring, for I have chosen you. Now look at Matthew 1.12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Now drop down to verse 16. Going through the lineage. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. 
Zerubbabel is a recipient of an overwhelming message. God repeat his wondrous acts in the future. The promises concerning Zerubbabel would be actualized in the promise of the Messiah that would come through the house of David. So Zerubbabel would stand in line, the line of David, through whom Christ would come. And as Christ would come as Messiah, Savior, Redeemer, Ruler, to crush earthly kingdoms, so he represented Zerubbabel, a signet ring, a servant of the Lord. These, again, are pictures of the gospel that run us to Christ, the King. Well, this time I'm going to ask the men to get the bread and come forth with that. And if you will, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we see Paul reiterating Christ's words when he gathered in the upper room before his crucifixion. This text, as we will read through it together as we partake, reminds us that this is a portrayal. It is a remembrance. It reminds us of Christ's past work. It's laden with Passover description, Exodus descriptions. Christ was sacrificed, the sacrificial lamb, the Passover. And so we look backwards and we look at the cross of Christ where he was a sacrificial lamb who stood in our place, the sinner, and taking the wrath that we deserve. And we boast in him. We boast in his work. It is also a present proclamation to one another because here we are as the body of Christ, members of the body, and we're looking at one another. We're going to partake in this. We're going to portray, if you will, faith, faith that has received Christ and received all his saving benefits in his person and work. And as we take this, it's a visual expression of, yes, I've received Christ. This is not Christ. It's a picture. God loves pictures. He made us very vivid people. And so we proclaim to one another, we all have been taken into Christ, united with Christ. We all share membership in him. He's our savior. It's not because of what we've done, because of what he did. It also has a future proclamation. He says that we're to proclaim him until he comes back. The Lord loves portrayals, doesn't he? Gospel pictures. A couple words of instruction as the men go ahead and pass this out for us. Um, Be reminded it is an open table. And that means that if you're a believer, you've trusted in Christ, you've turned from your sin, you rest in Christ alone for salvation, we invite you to partake and put Christ on display in this way. And if you're not a believer, you've not trusted in Christ, uh, in the terms of Haggai, you're kind of confronted with this text of running to the things of the world. Um, We just ask you to step back and, and watch. And if you are a believer who is holding on to a pattern of sin, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, hey, this is the time to step back from this, uh, to evaluate yourself, run to the gospel, repent, and then join us together next time. Take some time to think on the glories of the gospel as the men pass out the elements, and we'll pray and receive it together.
1 Corinthians 11, 23, Paul reiterating the Lord's words in the upper room. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's proclaim him in remembrance together as we take the bread. Lord God, we are reminded of texts like John 6, in which Jesus called the followers who were amazed at his power, at his feeding of the multitudes. He called them to eat of him and drink of him, and he connected that to the spiritual reality of trusting in Jesus Christ, turning from their sin, trusting the sufficient work of Christ. And it was unacceptable to them. It was foolishness to them. And they turned and walked away. But yet we see the promises of the gospel powerfully dealing with the disciples' life as they acknowledge that Christ is the Son of the living God, that He is the God, and acknowledge that He has the words of life. They clung to Him. Lord, we're reminded even portrayals like this, these pictures of, of taking in this bread, that Christ's body was crushed, was pierced, and that he took upon himself, even his soul, the judgment that we deserve and rightfully deserve. He took upon himself for his glory and his praise to show that he's a great Savior who saves people from their sins. So we praise you and thank you even for opportunities like this to proclaim Christ, to remember Christ visibly together as a body. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you go ahead and pass out the cup.
1 Corinthians 11.25, he goes on to say, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim him in remembrance together. We'll pray and close the service in prayer. And you'll be dismissed to meditate on the gospel and rejoice in him, rejoice in his sovereignty. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel, even a passage like this that is a double-edged sword. When we find ourselves finding identity in the things around us that are passing away, we are rebuked, and strongly so by this text. We all are together. At the same time, we are confronted so visibly in these wonderful pictures with the glory of your sovereignty and grace and salvation, ultimately in Christ. And it brings our hearts to rejoice, and it draws us away from seeing the pleasure and glory of these things that are passing away. And we're able to rejoice in Christ and glory in Him. And to come back to these things that you have given to us and the world around us, to glorify you with them and to put Jesus Christ on display. So Lord, we ask that you would deal with our hearts in this way. Continue to do so. Continue to dress our hearts through Scripture. May we run to your word often to see Christ and to love Him, adore Him, and seek His pleasure and glory. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.